How many of you have had a family pet? Have one now or have had one? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, most of you. If you're like me, you love that pet. It becomes part of the family, doesn't it? I have, we have a little dog named Cooper. Cooper's a beagle. And I remember the day that we went down to the Humane Society. And we, I decided, well, I went down to the Humane Society. And then I found the dog. And then I brought Amy with me later. You know, oh, Amy, you got to see this dog. So we brought the family in. We looked at Cooper with his cute little beagle face and the whiskers and those brown eyes. And we were, oh, we got to have him. He's such a wonderful dog. And so we brought him home. He became part of the family. Now, Cooper can get pretty much anything he wants from any of us just by giving us a certain look, which is why Sid Mahaffey made us put him on a diet about a year ago. All he has to do is give the look, and we'll feed him. We'll do pretty much anything he wants. I bet many of you can relate to that with your animals. They become part of the family. It's almost like an extended member of the family. We may not love them like our kids or like our our spouses or uh, parents or grandparents, but we still love them. They still become part of the family to some degree. But what about that dog you see on the side of the road, that mangy little mutt that doesn't have a home, probably has fleas and ticks, is just running around out in the community, I bet you probably feel sorry for that dog. Maybe you feed it a little bit, or maybe not. You might look at its tags to see if it has an owner. You might even call the Humane Society in order to try to to find some place for it to go. But generally speaking, unless you're one of the the few people that I've known do this sort sort of thing, generally speaking, you're probably not going to take that dog home, are you? You're not going to make that dog part of your family part of your community. You're just going to do what you can to help it if you feel so inclined, but you'd almost rather have it just kind of run along the side of the road and remain a mangy mutt rather than bring it inside your house. Well, in today's text, in today's gospel lesson, we're introduced to a dog, a mangy little dog. To be more specific, a mangy little dog that comes from a group of mangy little dogs Gentiles, that would be you and me, in case you're not up on that sort of thing. People who do not come from the line of Abraham, who are not, genealogically speaking, part of the nation of Israel. And we learn about this woman, that she has a daughter who is possessed by a demon. And she wants what all parents want for their children, the best. And so she comes to Jesus. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now, let's talk about what it meant to be a Gentile for just a second. In this culture, at this time, they were probably pagan worshipers. Maybe they worshipped the emperor. Maybe they worshipped the stuff that God created rather than worshipping the creator. Sexual licentiousness was unlike anything we can even fathom in our own culture. These were mangy people. These were an unspiritual people. They weren't like those Jewish elite, the ones that Jesus has just talked to in Mark 7. These are people who don't even have a desire to know God. And so this lady is coming to Jesus this morning... Perhaps not even wanting to have anything to do with the nation of Israel. 
not wanting to have anything to do with what it means to be Jewish. All she knows is this. My daughter's sick. This guy can heal her. I need his help. But Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows that this lady is not part of the nation of Israel. He knows she's not Jewish. And so he doesn't want to go throwing the gospel to somebody who's not Jewish. Who are the first people that Jesus teaches? The first people that Jesus teaches are the Jews. Now, Jesus heals and does works of mercy among the Gentiles. But the people he first takes the gospel to, the people that he's first teaching, are the Jews. And there's a paradox in this. Because in that lesson in Mark 7, earlier in Mark 7, we read it last week. The Jews come to Jesus and ask him why his disciples are not washing their hands thoroughly before eating a meal. And Jesus tells them, why are you so worried about whether or not my disciples are washing their hands? Make sure your hearts are clean, because that's what your heavenly Father desires. And the paradox that I just referred to is this. While the Jews want to find ways to trap and condemn Jesus... The Gentile comes and begs for Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, no. And so she presses her case. But she answered him, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The Jewish leaders said this lady had no hope for salvation. The elite thought there was no way, because of her social status and her religious status, that she could be saved. And let's be very clear here. I'm not sure that she was an overly spiritual person. I think she really was, if you want to think of it this way, someone who was just coming and looking for a few crumbs. Perhaps she didn't want the fullness of the faith. Perhaps she didn't want Jesus for anything more than the crumbs that he could offer. But we have to say this about the woman as opposed to the elite. The elite thought they had God all figured out and Jesus came and upended their expectations. They didn't come seeking him. He had to go seeking them. But this lady, this Gentile, this Gentile dog comes seeking the master. So who's better? Is it the elite? Is it the people that have all the answers? Or is that meager little dog with her faith just coming, hoping to get a little bit of what the master has to offer? Is she in the better position? Well, I think we know the answer to that. She's in the better position. The only thing she knows at this point is I need Jesus. Strip away all the barriers. Strip away all the religiosity. And that's what she's left with. My daughter's sick. I need Jesus. Could the Jews have delivered that to her? Not at that point. The Jews could have given her a great liturgy. The Jews could have told her and taught her about Jewish history. Could have given her a Passover feast. The Jews could have told her about animal sacrifice. But at this point, the way Judaism was functioning 
And that region at that time, they couldn't have delivered the goods. They couldn't have delivered what she needed. Which wasn't the religiosity. It was the reality. It was Jesus. I think the church always has to ask ourselves, ask itself, are we delivering Jesus to people? Or are we delivering nice sayings, helpful things that maybe we think are going to improve people's lives? Maybe we want to tell them about our history, tell them about who we are, but are we delivering Jesus Christ to the world? We live in a world sometimes that doesn't want to hear Jesus Christ. But I hope when people do come and ask questions and seek Christ, that we're actually delivering him rather than just telling people nice things about him. So what are the barriers that can sometimes be constructed within the church? How do we overcome those barriers? Actually, I'm not going to talk about the barriers as much as I'm going to talk about the cure. What does it mean for the church to deliver Jesus to the world. I'm reminded of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling along the desert. He's reading the Old Testament. He has some vague spiritual sense of what it means to know that who God is and what he is. And we're going to be talking about that to a large extent tonight, in tonight's service. How do we know who God is? How do we know how we got here? How do we know how, where we stand in relation to God? And I remember, I'm reminded of that passage because he's sitting here trying to figure it out. And along comes Philip. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Well, no, how can I? I don't have anybody here to explain it to me. That's our job. The church's job is to knock down every barrier to faith that exists so that we can connect people directly to Jesus. Not to our denomination, Not even to our local church, but to Jesus. All of that other stuff comes as sort of like a secondary thing. The first thing that we always have to ask ourselves is, have we delivered the message of the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ, to broken, dead sinners? If the answer is no, then we haven't done our job. That always has to be the central focus of everything that we do in the church. And so how do we break down the religiosity in church and deliver Christ to people? There are a lot of different approaches to this, but I think they're very simple. And a lot of times when I hear other people talking about things we need to do in order to recover the church and fix the church, I sometimes feel like I'm not in the right group or I'm not doing the right thing or saying the right thing because my answer is really simple. Baptize them. (laughs) Baptize them. As they're coming to you and they accept the message of the gospel, rather than creating an artificial period of time where you feel like they have to have all the particulars figured out about the faith, baptize them. Bring them into the body and then allow them to grow and start experiencing life in Christ with the community of believers... And as they begin to experience that life, they'll start picking up on the particulars. The way that I've seen baptism treated in so many churches is that if a person decides they want to be baptized, then they have to come to a class in order to make sure that they understand the way the team works, right? 
And once you understand how the team works, then we can bring you in and make you part of the team. Where do we see that? We do see in Philip, people, him going to the eunuch, taking the Bible and explaining this is what it means. But then immediately, as soon as the person gets it and says, I want to be baptized, bang. They're baptized. Who are we to stand in the way of that? Who are we to get in the way of the gospel? To get in the way of one of the means that Jesus brings people into his community of faith. So that's one thing. The other thing is this. The open table. The Lord's Supper. How many of you have ever experienced the Lord's Supper with a friend who hears us say that all people are welcome to the table and gets offended by that? Perhaps you've been offended by that. Or perhaps you've seen a little child come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. It assaults the church's sensibilities. And I think that's a great thing. Because one of the things that Jesus did is assaulted sensibilities by telling people this isn't about the religious dedication you have. It's about delivering me to people in a real way. And that real way, over and over again, has been the Lord's Supper. Now, let's be very clear, and I know this. The United Methodist Church stands very far outside the stream of many denominations and even the history of the church and the way that it practices. Traditionally, you're supposed to be baptized first, and then after you're baptized, particularly if you're a kid, you receive it somewhere between the age of 7 and 10 so that you can be catechized. But you know what? It's not my supper. And reality is, it's not yours either. It's not the church's supper. It's Christ's. And Christ gives it to whom he chooses to give it. And one of the reasons I like the fact that we celebrate an open table is that it assaults all of those religious sensibilities we have about how good we are and how bad they are. How worthy we are and how unworthy they are. When Christ sat the children on his knees, he didn't say, now I'm going to teach you a whole bunch of lessons and once you understand the lessons, then you're worthy of my love. It's not the way he functioned. Bring the children to me. Well, if that's true for children, how true is that of a Gentile woman who doesn't have all her spiritual acts in order, who doesn't have her spiritual house in order, but just comes looking for a few crumbs. I am absolutely convinced that an open table, when I say those words on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, all are welcome to receive of Christ's body and blood. I am absolutely convinced that that is the most welcoming moment that we can offer to people. You want to come forward and receive what Christ has for you, then we're going to offer that to you. So baptism and communion. And I know that in today's spiritual milieu, those don't sound like very spiritual things. They're very straightforward things. How does baptism make a difference? How does communion make a difference? Well, it makes a difference, number one, because Christ instituted them and told us to do them on a regular basis. But number two, it's entry into the church and it's sustenance along the way. And what are we saying when a person enters the church? Are they joining court in the United Methodist Church? Well, 
Yeah. But they're joining Christ's body. They're becoming part of him. And so who are we to get in the way of that? I think those are the most fundamental things that we can do in order to make sure that we're delivering Jesus and not religiosity. That we help people realize they're being baptized into Christ's body, not into ours. That this isn't our team. This isn't us saying you have to go through all these hoops in order to be part of us. It's Christ loves you. Receive him. In reality, we're all a bunch of mangy little mutts running around town trying to get a few crumbs from the master. Every single one of us. When we're tempted to look at other people and see them in a less than positive light, let's never forget that the sound of salvation was an amazing sound to us that saved a wretch like me. There's not one of us that's going to be in heaven because we were so great. And we're not going to be comparing ourselves to anybody else in heaven because we're going to realize how short we fell. It doesn't make us any worse, but it doesn't make us any better either. We're all a bunch of dogs who are running around, unspiritual dogs who didn't love the Lord, had no conception of who God was, didn't understand what we were supposed to be until God loved us all enough to say, here's who I am. Here's who you are. And the good news is, I love you. So let's never forget that God not only loves us, he loves all the people of all the world at all times and all places. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, I thank you that you took a bunch of groveling little puppies, every single one of us, and that you brought us into the fold. You not only threw us a few crumbs, but you give us an entire feast. Lord, we pray that you would help us never to take that for granted, but that we would see the glory of you in our lives and in everyone around us at all times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.